0: Thank you for downloading the African History and Politics Seminar, presented by the University of Oxford's African Studies Centre and the History Faculty. It's a week nice I was expecting to sit around a table with a, sort of, 10 or 12 people and have a conversation. and uh, Apparently, this is formal lectures now. Um, okay, well, uh, 31st of May last year was the 100th anniversary of the unification of the four colonies of what was then South Africa, uh, to become the Union of South Africa, an independent, uh, self-governing, sorry, self-governing British Dominion. Uh, This uh, event, which most countries would be regarded as a fairly um, important event, was largely ignored uh, in South Africa. Uh, part, I think, of a wider pattern of kind of, kind of airbrush out anything that happened before um, 1994. Um, but that's uh, that, that's by the way. Um. What I wanted to talk about was the, uh, what I've called the struggle, if you like, which I'm using because struggle is a common word uh, in, in South African historiography, uh, hundred years of struggle between the polity uh, and the market, and uh, some reflections uh, on that. Now, at the inception of, of Union in, in 1910, uh, the South African economy had about a population of about 6 million people. It was based largely on agriculture, and on a rapidly expanding and increasingly dominant gold mining uh, industry. By the standards of, even by the standards of the time, it was hardly a modern uh, economy. Uh, In fact, it was not until after the end of the anglo Boer War in 1902 that the the (coughs) the law, that's L-O-R-E, the law, the values, and the behaviors appropriate to a market-based exchange economy uh, began to become commonplace. Uh, Moreover, except at the most basic level of the provision of food to eat and most basic consumer goods, virtually all consumer requirements, along with machinery and uh, equipment for the mines and the railways, uh, had to be imported. By conventional standards, uh, the first 60 years of the Union, that's up until around 1970, uh, were economically relatively prosperous, so by conventional standards. uh, The country endured the privations of two world wars and the Great Depression of the early 1930s, but over the first 60 years or so, real GDP, that's the measure of the total value of all goods and services produced after allowing for inflation, real GDP had grown at an annual average rate of around 5%, which was not uh, unimpressive. Uh, and indeed, after allowing for population growth, this represented a virtual doubling of real average per capita, if you like, income over the same, uh, over the same period. <laughs> and yet, uh, even if that's quite good, good performance by conventional standards, South Africa can take rather little pride in its 100-year post-union record of economic growth and development. Uh, it had phenomenal mineral wealth, it had abundant human resources, uh, resources augmented at times by significant inputs of human and financial capital from abroad. And notwithstanding the fact that it developed uh, a modern and sophisticated formal economy, it has never come even close to realising its potential, its economic potential. And such growth as has been achieved uh, has been accompanied not only by seriously widened inequalities, uh, a phenomenon not unique to South Africa, it has to be said, but often also by increasing absolute levels of poverty and deprivation, which is rather more uh, unique. Now, for this tragedy, the system of apartheid was, of course, are uh, hugely responsible, but the expectation <coughs> that the ending of apartheid would engender uh, quite readily uh, a wide would, would engender quite readily widespread economic prosperity uh, was a misplaced uh, expectation. Um, after all, the absence of apartheid was not going to mean that things were going to change dramatically necessarily. You think about, uh, for example, Brazil and Argentina, structurally comparable or similar, structurally similar uh, economies, uh, didn't have apartheid but also failed rather miserably to deliver widespread prosperity over much the same period of time. By contrast, Australia, which is also structurally similar, uh, did uh, extremely well. so, uh, as I said, the um, the expectation that the ending of apartheid would, would generate widespread uh, prosperity was, was misplaced. Now, the economic structures that emerged over the decades were the result not only of the highly discriminatory race-based policies and institutions of white minority rule, but they were also due to two other factors. The first is that South Africa, and I've indicated this already, structurally speaking, was a market driven, resource rich, low income country with a small domestic market. And that was crucially important for the way in which the economy uh, developed. But in addition a further factor is that there was a uh, a little recognized and I think uh, not often acknowledged fact of a continuing struggle that took place between the polity on the one hand uh, in its endeavors to uh, impose its will on the economy and market forces uh, on the other hand. And this was reflected in a continuing process or continuing processes of contestation between uh, evolving domestic economic and political imperatives, that is to say between the demands of the market and the ideological and um, uh, social engineering objectives, if you like, uh, of the polity. And for most of this past century, uh, South Africa has suffered from the fact that its economic structures have been bent and twisted as the irresistibility of market forces has come into conflict with the seeming immovability of uh, political uh, imperatives. Now, the ending of apartheid, uh, through a transition process that began formally in 1919 and went on to 1994, but was a bit longer than that. Uh, the ending of apartheid began a, a process that's going to take generations of dismantling and remedying the effects of apartheid on the, uh, on the country's economy, and on, especially on its human capital. However, the ending of apartheid could not in itself Resolve the structural factor and, as I shall argue, it has also failed to resolve the third factor of the contest between polity and uh, market. Uh, a little bit of context, um, the determinants of economic growth in market-based economies are always complex and those of widely shared growth or development as you might call it are uh, even more so, especially in resource-rich uh, economies. A low-income developing country with a small domestic market, such as South Africa certainly was a century ago and arguably in relative terms still remains today, such a, an economy has no choice really but to lo- to rely on exports for its, path, uh, for its path towards growth and development. It's not necessary to be rich in natural resources in order to be successful, Witness the uh, Asian, East Asian tigers and the island economies of uh, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, or another example, a uh, country like Israel, which also has no natural resources but um, has a- achieved a significant growth. Um, th- these are examples of the fact that you don't need natural resources in order to have uh, highly successful uh, growth. Conversely, uh, having... rich commodity producing resource base is also no guarantee of success. Uh, We don't have to look beyond the various oil producing countries of Africa and the Middle East in order to to see that. And the path towards growth and development through commodity exports is a complicated one because the domestic economy uh, always becomes hostage to external economic terms exogenous uh, conditions in global commodity markets and the consequent commodity dependence of the economy uh, often seriously distorts domestic economic structures and policies and it's in this sense that uh, a rich resource base can become a curse rather than uh, a blessing now as a small resource rich but labor abundant economy South Africa's only realistic route to prosperity has always been the creation of large scale employment opportunities in export industries. In practice, this has meant and continues to mean the building of an internationally competitive manufacturing sector. Unfortunately, throughout its history, the country has repeatedly failed in both its employment creation objective and its export promotion imperative. And these failures are reflected in three enduring and interrelated structural economic characteristics. The first is a chronic balance of payments constraint, I'll come back to that in a moment. The second is a bias in favour of capital-intensive and, by extension, labour-saving production technologies and, hence, a low propensity for employment creation. And the third is a low level of international competitiveness. Now, remarkably, Uh, and rather worryingly, none of these three factors featured featured directly in the list of six binding constraints identified in the government's accelerated and shared growth initiative for South Africa as it was horrendously called identified as being the main obstacles to a sustainably higher uh, growth rate But let's leave that aside, the fact that these weren't recognised by by the government. Let's talk about the three constraints. First of all, the balance of payments constraint. Put simply, this means that the fact that South Africa's export earnings have never really... Sorry, let me rephrase that. The balance of payments constraint reflects, reflects the fact that South Africa's export earnings have never really been sufficient to fund the economy's uh, import requirements. Capital investment in South Africa has always been highly import intensive and uh, faster growth is normally associated with, in fact ultimately must be associated with increased capital investment. That means that faster growth is also ultimately associated with significantly larger import bills. At the same time, sales of exports which in South Africa's case are predominantly minerals and commodities, which are often subject to wide uh, wide price fluctuations, Uh, these exports have depended entirely on external economic conditions. So consequently what you have is faster growth, which invariably results in uh, surging import costs, but without necessarily generating a compensating rise in export earnings. And despite the passage of 100 years, this basic structural deficiency remains true until today. And indeed, in comparative terms, South Africa's export performance has actually been deteriorating over the last several decades. So that's the balance of payments constraint. What about the job creation uh, constraint created by the technological bias towards capital intensive uh, investment? Well, this problem, is starkly illustrated by the steadily decreasing proportion of new entrants to the labour market who, over the decades, were able to find work. Even in the so-called economic miracle of the 1960s, only about uh, three-quarters of the new entrants to the labour market found jobs. That proportion has decreased uh, continually over over the decades. And by the late 1980s, more jobs were being lost each year than were being created. And the result has been an ever increasing rise in mass unemployment and underemployment, which, on conservative estimates, now blights at least one in ev- the lives of one in every four potentially economic active adults. Uh, in fact, on less conservative estimates, it's about 40% of the uh, adult population that's unemployed. Uh, and it, this problem is especially uh, difficult for. Uh, 18 to 35s for whom approximately half have no uh, employment and even the moderate expansion that took place in the last decade uh, has been widely characterized as jobless growth and the most visible signs of this phenomenon uh, of inability to absorb the um, the population, the, the, the working population, uh, include the growing army of petty traders on the streets and of traffic lights and the um, ubiquitous parking attendants, for want of a better word, that you can find in almost every non-residential uh, urban street. So, that's the balance of payments constraint and the production technology constraint. What about the competitiveness problem? Well, in the early post-union decades, South Africa still imported virtually all its manufactured goods, not only machinery and equipment and other industrial inputs inputs, but also consumer goods. These imports were mainly paid for by gold, exports of gold. Growing economic nationalism fairly naturally led to a desire for a local industrial base. Given the tiny size of the domestic market, most startup industries required substantial tariff protection. It was imperative that these industries, these infant industries, should eventually outgrow their need for protection and generate large-scale manufactured exports to replace gold. The reason being that the production of gold was doomed, as a wasting asset, it faced a fixed price, although that price got adjusted from, from time to time, but uh, it was fairly clear that eventually this asset would run out and South Africa would need another source, uh, a major source of of exports. Instead, the protective barriers were all intensified and in the absence of effective competition, the new industries became endemically inefficient, high cost and hence uncompetitiveness. And these conditions were mirrored in and exacerbated by the parallel rise of a host of monopolistic state-owned enterprises that were not subject to any form of significant uh, market discipline. Uh, in brief, the short-term gains that were afforded by protection exacted a very heavy long-term uh, penalty. Over the last four decades, South Africa's competitiveness has been further undermined by the chronic instability of its currency. At a fixed exchange rate system up until the early 1970s, pound was, the rand was linked uh, basically to the pound. Uh, Before that, it was the pound, Um, but since then, it's been a a system of uh, floating exchange rates. And the South African rand has been amongst, if not the, most volatile uh, currency uh, in the global economy. And every episode of major currency appreciation (coughs) has increased in value has inflicted serious damage both on exporters and local producers of import competing goods, While the repeated periods of depreciation have also not been conducive to to improved competitiveness, not least because they have led to imported inflation and hence to increases in the cost base. So we've got these three interrelated constraints. The chronic insufficiency of exports in relation to imports, the inability to create enough jobs even to stop unemployment from rising, and a very low level of international competitiveness. These three problems have always been plainly evident to South Africa's policymakers. So why then, you might ask, uh, have they never been resolved? Policy makers have always known what these problems are, and they've never really been able to uh, tackle them. There are three main answers to this question. The first is that South Africa has been exceptionally susceptible to windfalls from abroad. Uh, Initially, these related to the international price of gold, which, as I say, was fixed until the early 1970s, uh, largely determined by American political fiat. Consequently, the gold price in dollars, remaining fixed for very long periods of time, left gold production in South Africa perpetually squeezed between a fixed selling price and the steeply rising costs of extracting the metal from deep liberal mines. And that was a feature that was unique to South Africa, the deep-level mining it was uh, uh, a, a challenge that not many other countries have had to face. In 1934 and 1949, there were devaluations of sterling, and these significantly increased the price received by the mines. And so this day of reckoning that was always seemed to be on the horizon. Uh, this day of reckoning when gold could no longer be profitably extracted uh, was deferred for some considerable time uh, into the future in the 1970s uh, a competitive international gold market was created and at a time of uh, considerable uh, global financial upheaval the gold price climbed spectacularly from $35 a fine ounce which it had been since about 1949 to over $800 in 1981, providing yet more windfall gains. More recently, over the past uh, decade, the country has been a fortunate beneficiary of global financial conditions again, uh, leading to periodic and sometimes sustained inflows of portfolio capital, Uh, that is um, funds, investment funds, uh, currently facing almost a zero rate of return in Europe and North America and the other developed economies and they're washing over into uh, so-called emerging economies, uh, South Africa uh, included. And this has enabled South Africa, at least over the last uh, few years, to run uh, an unprecedented balance of payments deficit. The crucial point, however, is that all these windfalls have been totally and wholly unrelated to South Africa's economic fundamentals. Arguably, their principal effect has been to obscure underlying realities and defer and certainly make more difficult uh, policy decisions about trying to resolve South Africa's structural problems. The second answer as to why uh, these problems have never been resolved lies in the international sanctions campaigns of the 1980s to 1990s which severely distorted and curtailed South Africa's trade relations. Distorted and curtailed its exports to Africa. It also uh, raised the costs of important fundamental imports, uh, substantial rises, particularly in uh, costs of oil and other uh, commodities. Uh, It discouraged, even reversed, uh, foreign direct investments in the country. It significantly reduced competition in local markets because as foreign firms withdrew, the small number of local conglomerates simply sucked up the assets that were being uh, made available. Um, It induced a very long-running recession leading to very large-scale job losses and significant reductions in industrial capacity. And it reinforced a fortress mentality Uh, towards uh, international economic policy just at the time that the necessity for and the benefits of a more outward looking and less interventionist approach towards a policy were were beginning to percolate through to South Africa's key uh, policy makers and the adverse structural and policy consequences of several of these effects are still present today but the third answer and this is comes to the the core of my paper, uh, lies in the continuing struggle between the broadly liberating thrust of market forces and the broadly stifling hand of the polity. Uh, Now, market forces, of course, are not perfect. Uh, At times, they can be seriously imperfect. Uh, Markets are by no means a panacea to all economic ills, that's perfectly obvious, the fact remains that virtually all the world's prosperous economies are market driven. And that's a testament to, a clear testament to the underlying strength of the, uh, of the market system. Now, sadly, the determination of successive South African governments to override and distort market forces for social engineering purposes on behalf of sectional and especially racial interests has inflicted incalculable damage. Under white minority rule, these efforts focused mainly on the labor market, whether in yielding to the demand from white miners for protection from black competition, or addressing the so-called poor white problem of the interwar years, or seeking to stem and turn back the flood of black uh, migrants into the towns and cities. So let's look further at this issue. Focusing particularly on the, the question of the job creation uh, challenge, the paradox of highly capital investment, ha- capital-intensive investment, which typically creates relatively few jobs, in conjunction with seemingly abundant supplies of labour, is no by no means peculiar to South Africa. However, South Africa's development path has embodied a particularly extreme form of this mix and that's particularly unfortunate because in principle as Ralph Horwitz who wrote a fascinating book on South Africa's political economy back in 1966, as he put it, the unique aspect of the gold mining industry was that it was capital intensive, labour intensive and export intensive and that in principle could have solved South Africa's problems. Now why didn't it do so? Well first of all because the geological nature of the mines presented a requirement not only for huge capital investment but also for significant numbers of skilled artisans together with very much larger numbers of unskilled workers. Now the skilled workers of necessity uh, were recruited mostly recruited from abroad or from the local white population. The semi-skilled and particularly the unskilled workers were mainly uh, uh, initially not blacks from South Africa itself but from uh, southern Africa, the wider southern African region, who were induced into a system of temporary migrant labour. Initially, wage rates, both absolute and relative, for both groups were determined entirely by market forces, without conscious regard to race. But racial politics quickly intervened to institutionalize discrimination in the form of a job colour bar, which in turn increased the wage bargaining power of the white workers. Now, This was not the doing of the white mine owners. Uh, The mine owners were not averse to coercive measures to encourage Africans to forsake their traditional societies. Wage labor on the mines, but the emerging color bar was most decidedly not in their economic interests. Um, this was on account of the extreme sensitivity uh, in the face of the fixed gold price of mining profits to wage costs. Anything that raised wages uh, was going to be um, a, a problem for, the, uh, for, for the, the, the mine owners. But the mine owners' repeated efforts. Uh, in the post-Union years to undermine the color bar led ultimately to the Rand strike of 1922 and subsequently to the advent in 1924 of the Pact government, a coalition between the Afrikaner-dominated Nationalist Party and the White Workers Labour Party. From that point on, the battle between the polity uh, consisting of the prejudices, if you like, of the, of the whites, uh, white uh, community the battle between the polity and the and market forces shifted decidedly in favour of the polity, uh, not only on the mines, but also throughout the economy and society. And in particular, given the whole panoply of other controls, including the past laws and the land laws, uh, market forces within the labour market were distorted by a wide range of constraints and controls and the economic interests of blacks were increasingly subjugated to those of whites, especially off the corners. Meanwhile, the realities presented by the existential challenge facing the mining industry remained inescapable. In this respect, there had already been considerable debate over the merits of promoting local industry through tariff protection, as had been done in a number of countries elsewhere in the world, as a first step towards export diversification. Reservations about this idea were partly theoretical and partly practical. Theoretically, it offended against the prevailing free trade orthodoxy, but practically, there was the danger that higher priced outputs of protected local industries would severely damage the mining industry in the long term by raising its production costs. So both in academia and in the public service, there was general recognition that if implemented, a policy of um, industrialized uh, import substituting industrialization through protection should be based on the application of commercial criteria wherever possible. But the, the Pact government's preoccupations were not with issues of competitiveness, they were with issues of, um, uh, of race. And in particular, with the so-called poor white problem. Uh, uh, as, as uh, Jill Natras described this uh, in the early 20th century South Africa's most pressing social problem was not black unemployment but the growing number of almost destitute and largely uneducated whites who found it virtually impossible to, ta- to attain a job that would enable them to live amongst the rest of their fellow whites that was the main political preoccupation of the, uh, the Pact government and in a conjunction with what became known as the Civilised Labour Policy, which again was a way of justifying um, uh, racial discrimination on the railways, in conjunction also with the establishment of the state-owned Iron and Steel Corporation, Isco, in 1928, protect- protected industrialization was seen primarily as a means of creating employment for whites. Uh, Charles Feinstein, in his uh, recent book, Which I think was uh, published uh, shortly after he died, um, uh, he observed that this policy of attempting to link import substituting industrialization to policies designed to create employment specifically for one group in the labor force was in fact unique to South Africa. In addition, of course, commercial agriculture, which was also almost exclusively white-owned, was offered considerable protection against imports in order to guarantee markets for its outputs, especially in the uh, emerging food industry. Although the primary focus uh, for the government of industrialization was relief of white unemployment, inevitably, the new industries also generated many jobs for blacks, albeit largely only in menial and low-paid roles. But with the advent of the Second World War, industrial development accelerated dramatically, both on account of the war effort itself and the associated dis- disruptions to in international trade, South Africa was largely cut off from imports from the, the the rest of the world, and therefore started trying to produce uh, its own uh, its own goods. And notwithstanding the colour bar, with many whites having been mobilised into the military, there was a consequent ru- sharp rise in job vacancies, which led inexorably to the growing recruitment of black workers into increasingly skilled and responsible positions. However, 1948 brought the election of the National Party Government and the polity again quickly sought to reassert its dominance over market forces and to reinforce discrimination against black workers. From a purely economic perspective, as Feinstein noted, the crucial post-war question was whether the existing system comprising the established but cost-constrained gold mining industry Heavily subsidised commercial farming and protected industries could continue to promote the expansion of an economy in which the contribution of mining was expected to diminish and growth would have to depend predominantly on the ability to generate further and more self-supporting advances uh, in manufacturing. In the event, thanks to the 1949 devaluation, uh, which provided a great windfall, as I said, the predictions that the mining industry would be undermined by the, production, by the protection-induced increases in costs did not, uh, uh, did not uh, materialize. The enhanced gold revenues gave manufacturing industry a new lease of life, in fact, and the long-term policy challenge was deferred. Over the next 25 years, industrialization, driven mainly by a process of import substitution, proceeded by leaps and bounds real value added by private manufacturing grew at an average rate of over 7% per year between 1948 and 1974 that's a very extended uh, boom Uh, and employment grew at an average rate of 4.3% annually between that, uh, that period nonetheless impressive though that performance was it was obscuring two fundamental problems first of all the adverse balance of trade, which I've I've already discussed, and secondly, the failure to absorb the rapidly growing uh, labor force. Much of the investment was carried out by foreign suppliers who substituted local manufacture for their own imports. In doing so, they brought with them uh, their relatively sophisticated first world, if you like, uh, capital-intensive and labor-saving production technologies Such technologies generally produced more output per unit of fixed capital invested and hence were more profitable than labour intensive uh, methods. And the real value of fixed capital investment in manufacturing increased sevenfold between 1948 and 1974. Output increased more than sixfold, but employment grew only threefold. Now these trends were really the outcome of rational responses by producers to the incentives and the policy structures that they faced in the marketplace. Firms' relative preference for machines over labour reflected what they saw as the high cost of labour, both white and black. Well, why was black labour, both black labour and white labour regarded as high cost? Well, first of all, skilled labour, which was almost exclusively white under the, uh, the colour bar, was perpetually in short supply uh, especially after immigration from Europe was restricted in the 1950s and so being short in short supply it was able to bid up its uh, its price moreover many white workers were unionised and that further enabled them to bid up their price by contrast the supply of black labour was plentiful at least potentially so despite increasingly restrictive government policies The flow of migrant workers attracted to the growing scale of economic opportunities in urban areas accelerated. In addition, migrants stayed in the urban areas for much longer periods. periods. As Joel Natras noted, the combined effect of these two influences was to to increase the potential supply of man contributed by the migrant labour system from 6 million in 1936 to nearly 25 million in 1970. So why then was black labour high cost? Well that was because the demands of the white polity uh, made the effective supply of black labour much more limited especially especially the supply of semi-skilled, much needed semi-skilled workers. Black workers were largely uneducated and unskilled they were denied education and skills training they lived in poor and insecure housing conditions They often had to commute very long hours and distances to work They were shoved out into townships outside of the uh, the main cities and uh, away from the industrial areas and had to endure long, several hour long journeys to work in the morning and back home again Uh, And consequently, their productivity was generally extremely low Moreover, employers as well as uh, as the workers had to deal with the uncertainties and the bureaucratic restrictions imposed by the past laws and the system of influx control, restrictions that were exacerbated over time by increasingly direct restrictions on the employment of black labour in the main urban centres as the government sought to induce firms to relocate to the so-called border industrial areas of the Bantistans. From the perspective of many firms, therefore, black labour was not cheap, despite the fact that black workers were often paid abysmally low wages. Even when manufacturing was at the peak of its expansion, demand for labor in the sector was manifestly far below that required to prevent the rise of mass unemployment. Equally clearly, firms' experiences of the operation of the labor market, which was shaped so much by political interference, were a key factor in this equation. From the mid-1970s onwards, most of the trends in manufacturing reversed. Manufacturing output growth slumped to an average of 1.6% per year uh, between 1974 and 1994, um, and was in fact effectively zero between 1981 and 1994. Moreover, firms were clearly not investing for employment growth. Total manufacturing employment was only 13% higher in 1994 than in 1974, and actually declined in absolute numbers from 1981 onwards. In short, along with much of the rest of the private sector, including the mining sector, manufacturing was by now shedding, not creating jobs. Meanwhile, black workers were becoming increasingly unionised, and hence were themselves able to bargain more effectively for better wages and working conditions in principle the ensuing negotiated settlement should also have delivered benefits to many firms via improvements in productivity in practice however for the sector as a whole the growth of labor productivity that is output per worker slowed considerably between 1974 and 1994 and was stagnant during the turbulent years between 1981 and 1987. And this outcome will have done very little to counter employers' growing preference for capital uh, over labor. What then of the post-transition period? Against much expectation, uh, the period since 1994 has delivered little improvement on the employment front. Although economic growth did resume on a modest scale between 1994 and 2004, it was widely described as jobless growth. Uh, Joe Natras' fear that as the economy grew, the people who managed to secure jobs will enjoy rising living standards while an increasing number will be excluded from an opportunity to share in the growing wealth of the country. Uh, That um, uh, expectation was uh, sadly realised. There was some growth in jobs Uh, in trade and in financial, business and personal services, but in the public sector, especially the state-owned enterprises and in mining, the numbers of jobs contracted sharply. In private manufacturing, the putative driving force of the economy, employment fell by around 22% in the first post-apartheid decade before stabilising in 2006 to 2008. Total private sector employment did rise in the 2005 to 2008 mini-boom, but most of the gain was quickly reversed in the 2009 recession. Now, I've said it before, but the ending of apartheid could not reasonably reasonably have been expected to bring a quick recovery from the long-term damage done to labour productivity by its institutions and policies. That process uh, could take several generations to complete. It was not unreasonable, however... To expect that the stifling and distorting hand of the polity, especially in respect of social engineering objectives, would be withdrawn from the labour market, mm-hmm. providing the opportunity for the market's strengths uh, to come to the fore. Instead, market forces have continued to be shackled, no longer by the dictates of apartheid, but by the quotas, targets, and entitlements of transformations, as it's called through the agencies of affirmative action and black economic empowerment and on the grounds of post-apartheid political imperatives. Uh, Arguably to South Africa's great cost, uh, the opportunity to allow the market forces to uh, re-establish themselves was not fully grasped by the new polity. The rationale for passing it up was that the discrimination endured by the historically disadvantaged Especially in respect of their access to assets, uh, that that, uh, historical uh, factor justified positive discrimination uh, in the form either of affirmative action or empowerment in their favour as recompense. This new form of social engineering has been applied particularly to the allocation of human resources defined in its broadest uh, sense. Tackling the poor white problem of the interwar years constituted a political imperative for the Pact government. That's the fact that can't be gainsaid. It was, however, fundamentally immoral to privilege one section of the population at the expense of others purely on the grounds of race. The polities' policies were understandable, if you like, from a narrow political perspective, but were hugely damaging to the general economic welfare of the wider population. The number of jobs that would have been created in the absence of the colour bar would have been vastly larger, and the associated structural economic flaws to which it gave rise would have been mitigated. The hideous degrees of economic inequality that it helped to generate, together with the associated narrowness of the domestic market and the abiding bias in favour of labour-saving technologies, so totally inappropriate in a labour abundant economy, would at the minimum have been reduced. It seems to me that the argument that the deprivations and depredations suffered by black South Africans under apartheid provide a political imperative for encumbering the labour market anew with institutionalised protect- protections is similarly flawed. It may be politically incorrect to say so, but it seems to me counterintuitive. To assert that the demands of transformation in the labour market have not continued to inhibit employment creation, as was the case for many decades under the Ancien Regime. More fundamentally, in a context in which close to 40% of the total labour force and more than half of those aged 18 to 35 have no gainful employment, the requirement that all jobs must be decent jobs, as they are described, is continuing to create a class of privileged insiders alongside a vast mass of disadvantaged outsiders. Uh, Today's privileged minority is no longer racially exclusive, but it is no less exclusive for that fact. Far from transforming South South African society at large, These policies are perpetuating and entrenching some of the gross inequalities created by apartheid. Apartheid stifled the entrepreneurial talents inherent in the community at large. It discouraged real wealth-creating enterprise and allowed the welfare-enhancing forces of competition and merit to function freely only within a privileged minority. Instead of liberating the labour market from these inhibitions, post-apartheid South Africa is promoting a culture of entitlement and dependency.